So welcome everyone to the next Caterpillar podcast, and we have our reoccurring guest, Drak. Do you want to introduce yourselves? Okay. Hello, uh, well, I am Drak. I've been here a few times before. <laughs> I, I run the YouTube Naval History Channel, Drakinafel. Uh, that's pretty much all there is to me. <laughs> well, I mean, you say that, but you do do quite a lot. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think I've probably talked about Pearl Harbor more in the last three days than I ever possibly want to again. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, well, there's there's that. And I, I fight with swords occasionally, which is very much more interesting. Yeah, I saw you did the call-up with Matt Easton. Yes. Bye. Yeah, sparring collab will not come for some quite some time in the future, mainly because I like limbs. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, we do have safety sparring gear, but, you know, he's been doing it a lot, lot longer than I have, so I will lose horribly. Well, maybe as an April 1st comedy value, that would be quite interesting, watching me being chased around a sort of uh, sparring arena with a, by an angry swordsman. With some suitable music in the background, I'm sure. Yeah. Very amusing. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's... Sax in there. Yeah, funny, we both thought of the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, we, we've, we've gotten you back this week because we have a whole bunch of ships to talk about. I think most of which actually existed. There's a couple mm. of the Italian destroyers, I think, tier eight and tier nine, which yes. did not exist. And then we have the Atlantico tier eight premium, which seems to be some. I don't know. I, I you might know more about that, but just looking at it, it seems like some um, design it, drawn up by a, a dockyard somewhere. That, yes, it's yeah. um, interesting, shall we yeah. say? <laughs> well, what we're going to start off with is one that just came out. It's the mm -hmm. first French aircraft carrier, and for a long time, France's only aircraft carrier, the Bian. Yes, uh, it's. Um... Yeah, th th there's not a tremendous amount positive to say about poor old Ben. <laughs> I, yeah. She... Give us a, a brief rundown of its uh, career. To start okay, with. so she, she began life pre-World War One as a battleship. The, uh, well, she kept her name, but she was the last Normandy-class battleship to be laid down. And once the war ended... Um, France was a little broke, and the Normandies, they decided, had become obsolete whilst on the stocks, because they'd laid them down sort of late 1913, early 1914, and it was now sort of 1918, 1919, things had moved on. The ones that were more advanced were scrapped um, in, in terms of their construction progression, but then they thought, oh, she's not quite as... Um, put together as the rest of them, so she's more open for conversion. And of course, in the late 1910s, early 1920s, everybody's favourite new thing is aircraft carriers. And she was pretty much the biggest hull that the French had available. And obviously, hull size is quite important for flight deck length for carriers. And so they decided to turn it into a carrier, much in the same way that the British converted Glorious, Courageous and Furious, the Americans converted Lexington as Saratoga, the Japanese did Akagi and Kaga, um, albeit obviously the Japanese wanted to do Amagi and Akagi, but the Great Canto Earthquake had other ideas. And most of those conversions to greater or less degrees worked out, 
Bern, on the other hand, had the great disadvantage of not being the same as all the others in terms of all the British carrier conversions. Well, in those in those uh, were um, light battle cruisers or large light cruisers, if you believe Admiral Fisher. Lexington and Saratoga were battle cruisers. Amagi was a battle cruiser. Cargo was a battleship, but a pretty fast one by the standards of the early 1920s. Granted, the British did have Eagle, which was a converted battleship, but even Eagle had initially had a uh, target top speed that was higher than Bairns. So, and obviously, when you generally when you convert a battleship to a carrier, you tend to earn yourself a few extra knots in speed, unless you com- unless you do something quite radical, because building a relatively lightweight hangar and flight deck but removing a bunch of armor and heavy guns and turrets tends to leave you with a net loss in weight. But Bairn had originally been supposed to be a 21-knot battleship. Her whole size was somewhat constrained in, in any case by the size of the French dockyards at the time, and so she comes out as a battleship carrier conversion with an incredibly low speed. She barely breaks over 21 knots even in carrier form, and as a result of that, and her small, relatively small hull size compared to the others, she doesn't have the world's greatest aircraft carrying capacity either. The hangar's quite narrow, the flight deck is short, she's not very fast. So, yeah, she's she's basically everything that you wouldn't want in a carrier, save for the fact that she is a carrier, so at least they can mm. practice takeoff and landings, which is really about all she's good for. So would they have just been better off starting with a purpose-built hull? <laughs> yeah, oh, by a long, long shot. Um, yeah, a purpose-built carrier would have been far better for the French Navy. Basically, the only reason they do this is because, as I said, they're, they're effectively flat-out broke, mm-hmm. and this is the cheapest way of them getting a carrier. I so, know, I've always, I've always kind of wondered why... Beyond was it until the, I mean there were some carriers transferred to the Free French mm. during World War Two I believe yes but basically all through the interwar years Beyond was it so uh, was it just uh, politics funding mixture of both mostly mostly funding okay. um, so you know, obviously everyone's heard of the Washington Naval Treaty um, the five big signatories are Britain America Japan France and Italy. But a combination of just post-war finances and then the Great Depression mean that whilst Britain, the US and Japan kind of build up to approximately within range of their treaty limits or maintain their fleets at their treaty limits, um, France and Italy both end up actually scrapping vessels that under the treaty they are allowed to keep because they need to save money. Okay. Um, that's how bad an economic situation they're they're in. They don't actually um, have the capability of maintaining a fleet even on the 1.75 ratio that they're given compared to the 5.53 of the three big navies. And so they have been, in theory, they have openings to build another bigger carrier um, coming up in the early 1930s. But they exercise their early build options by building the two Dunkirks, Dunkirk and Strasbourg. And then they run, they are looking at a 
class of carrier, which will eventually become the Joffre class carriers, which they do lay down um, some examples of. But then the whole thing gets uh, put on hold by World War Two. But they're running, even with them, they're running into the same kind of problems they're actually running into with the Richelieu's, which is that they do not have shipyards big enough. This is something they're constantly running into throughout the early 20th century. Every class of ship that gets bigger, they end up having to extend their dockyards to be able to build them. Richelieu is actually too big. They end up building her in sort of 90% of the hull with bits missing, which are due to be attached once it's launched. Um, and because they're still short of cash, the, the only reason they really build uh, Dunkirk and Strasbourg is because they're worried about the Deutschland class. Hmm. Um, they just they never get around to building a, the equivalent of Ark Royal or Yorktown, even though they probably the French Navy would have liked to, but they they just do not have the money. Um, and by the time they do have the money, it's too late. I have to. I'm wondering some alternate universe if they'd gotten some carriers instead of instead of a Richelieu, for instance. Like, you know, Jean Bart mm. didn't get to do very much during the war. So if they'd had a more capable carrier, one wonders if that would have yeah, well, I mean, managed more participation at least than Jean Bart did. Carriers carriers generally do t- take a little bit less time to complete than battleships. So obviously, as you say, Jean Bart's not complete. Richelieu's kind of complete and it's not actually but good enough for government work um it can at least sail and fight by the time the french surrender comes mm. through but um, yeah i mean so as if you'd built if they built richelieu and jean Bart as carriers instead of battleships starting at the same build dates richelieu probably would have been just about fully operational jean Bart probably would have been in a similar state to richelieu so the hull would be there probably the guns wouldn't be aircraft probably wouldn't be either but as a as a carrier functionally it would be there obviously the question then becomes what happens to them um uh, do they you know do they sail off somewhere remote do they stay loyal to vichy france do they join the free french who knows so what what did Bian actually do like uh during the war um so during the war itself, she doesn't do a tremendous amount. Um, they, she has been rebuilt during the 1930s to a certain degree, um, although not like not kind of war spite or Congo style full modernization. Um, she has paradoxically, considering that she is almost the worst of all carriers, she did actually um, end up being the first carrier to operate a six, uh, successfully operate a twin engine aircraft um which normally is something that you associate with the very late to world war 2 to post world war 2 environment but you know it, it's not kind of she's operating full strike wings of twin engine attack aircraft it's literally just she's proved the concept that you can actually do this um she's during the war itself Initially, they try to use her as a uh, like like you would use an, the average carrier. So at this very start of the war, they've got to worry about things like Graf Spey. So as a carrier, she can launch aircraft to search for her. But considering that the rest of the French um, searching forces are all high speed, they fairly quickly get the idea that a 21-knot carrier isn't going to keep up with everything else that can do 30-plus. So she 
she even though the war is just kicking off she is actually in the process of almost not quite but almost being taken out of service as a carrier they're converting her to work uh, with flying boats as well which obviously is not something that you do as a as a strike carrier hmm. she's also used as transport uh, but then it's quite obvious that the French are not entirely sure what to do with her. She is still their only carrier, but of such limited use, they keep finding other things for her to do that don't involve her, her being used as a carrier. If I remember correctly, she was at one point also involved with ferrying some French gold. Yes, yeah, this is what I mean by using her as a transport. So yeah. they're using her as an aircraft ferry, a gold ferry... So all sorts of weird and wonderful things that don't involve her being an active cat. Although to be fair, you know, during the invasion of France, there is precious little for most of the Marine Nationale to do. A couple of the older battleships get used for short bombardment to support their own troops. But most of the modern French Navy, if you can class Bern as modern, doesn't really have a tremendous amount to to do because it's it's a land invasion and most of it's taking rain uh, place out of the range of carrier aircraft as well. But um, then you have the um, you've got the, the the French armistice, the the French surrender, and that finds Bern overseas. Um, initially, she is um, disabled so that she can't be used. But she spends a good chunk of that time immediately after the, f the surrender of being sort of half disabled, half flooded, stuck overseas, not really doing all that much. <laughs> but eventually she ends up joining the Free French and gets refitted for what good that, that does for her. So she, do she does then spend... Um, the rest of the war basically uh, mo mostly acting as a ferry for aircraft um, and a kind of not quite an escort carrier, but but she she has a, a certain level of use in that. But that's basic. That's basically what she she ends up doing for most of World War Two. She's just a um, a glorified transport that has a particular predilection for moving aircraft around. Um, Weirdly enough, despite, again, the fact that she is such an old and pretty obsolete uh, vessel as an aircraft carrier, she ends up doing quite a lot of work post-war, considering that, you know, um, her contemporaries, well, Saratoga is expended in an atomic bomb test. Um, Furious is the only other survivor of that period for the, for the British, and she's out of service pretty quickly. Um, but then kind of soldiers on working effectively as a trans still as a transport rather than as a aircraft carrier itself and then eventually ends up becoming briefly a helicopter carrier and then um sort of verges off into this kind of depot ship tender ship role and actually doesn't actually go to the breakers until the 60s yeah, it was until like the late sixties as well. Yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, immediately post-war, the French were quite interested in uh, recovering Indochina uh, as it was then. So they yeah. would have definitely had a need, an immediate need for 
Yeah, I mean they've got they've got one of the um, they've got one of the light fleet aircraft carriers that the British built in large numbers, and they called, they they took turned it into the Aramash, and that acts as their actual aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I suppose, but Ben once once she's basically ended her life as a viable aircraft carrier early in World War Two, she has this slightly odd. She sits in this slightly odd period because uh, sort of or space in ship design where she's quite large for the average transport. She's still well over 20,000 tons. So compared to most freighters and other transport, she's quite big. She's got quite a lot of capacity. And although 21 knots is pretty useless for a capital ship in World War One, or sorry, in World War II, um, it's still a lot faster than pretty much most other transports that exist. Mm. So She's big and fast if she's used as a cargo vessel, but she's small and slow if she's used as a carrier. And so the French, as I say, basically end up using her as a gigantic fast transport. Yeah, I did I did wonder, having seen this at Tier 6, and the fact that Wargaming were perfectly happy to, more or less, I mean, invent might be too strong a word, but... Uh, uh, yeah, to heavily embellish the vague plans of, of Soviet naval aviation mm. into a line of carriers. I did wonder how far we might get with French carriers because we've we've actually got you know the potential of um, some of the escort classes. It was like a Boga and Avenger class. You could have a, yeah. a, a tier four, maybe Joffre tier six, possibly. Colossus, yeah, yeah Aromarsh at tier eight. And then I, I have no idea what you'd do for tier 10. I mean, the, the, there was... Um, Bring Clemens off Ocean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you go well into the, the 60s and 70s at that point, but it, I, yeah. I guess it would depend what kind of aircraft you put on them. Like maybe, yeah. maybe I mean, they, they, they the initial did, design of, of one of the, the, the Clemenseaus. They did have a... Um, they did have plans for a successor to the Joffre. Um Again, it's mostly paper, but they did actually have have plans for a slightly larger carrier. So that may be, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly how large it is, but that that might scrape in kind of at a tier 10 level, kind of similar okay. to an audacious style air group. Um, but I'd, I'd have to check. It's, it's possible, but yes, it's, you know, there's more aircraft carriers that have flown the French flag in real life that could make up like two thirds of a French carrier tech tree than there ever were Russian uh-huh. ones. <laughs> yeah, I mean really I, I was looking at it and thinking, actually it's only the tier ten that you would need to maybe monkey around with. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they... I mean the split to like just even tiers as carriers does make it somewhat easier. Yeah. I mean, for tier 10, they could always just do like uh, a, a paper battleship and say, what if this paper battleship was built and then converted to a carrier, right? Alsace conversion. I mean, yeah. it's, it's enough for Wargaming to, to, <laughs> to come up with something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's in the game. Um, I suppose the thing is, when, when you're in the game, the fact that the thing can only do 21 knots probably matters a lot less than it did in real life. It, yeah, it depends. I mean, I, I, I bought it, I've played it a bit. It's definitely not great. No. Uh, the speed is definitely a limiting factor sometimes. I mean, I've, I've had 
uh, uh, was it one or two games? I don't know. I got chased down by destroyers and really couldn't do much about it. <laughs> yes. It's just, you really, you can't do anything except try and turn away, but they, they just pelt you with, with gunfire and the, that's that. And the actual armament of uh, the dive bombers, the AP dive bombers are definitely inferior to the Japanese ones. And the skip bombers are okay, but you have to use them differently against different targets, which is kind of hard to, you know, you, you don't just learn, have to learn one habit. You have to, uh, I mean, with, with a lot of ships, the, the you know, cruisers and destroyers and whatever, it's fine to hit them on the marker. Mm. But with battleships, you actually have to aim slightly past because otherwise it just smacks into the side of the hull and does no damage. As yeah. On numerous occasions. So. I, I've never gotten or really gotten along with the skip bombers myself, but I'm glad you've seemed to work out how to use them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're, got. They've got a good fire chance. Mm. Um, but the, the article, when this came out, did definitely note that it, it might be subject to further balancing, so I suspect we might see some minor buffs come to yeah. in the future. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point they bring out... Uh, to be honest, I'm given that they've got midway in the game and Hikuryu, I I would not be entirely surprised if at some point we got a Malta as a tier ten British premium. Uh, well, people were surprised that wasn't the tier ten when the line. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose I can see the argument they did build the audacious. So, yeah, but um, yeah, it's just because I'm I'm thinking that. What, uh, given the, the love of gimmicks, I'm thinking if it was a premium tier 10, the Malta would probably, in, in World of Warships, probably be equipped with sea mosquitoes dropping highballs, which would be amusing as anything. <laughs> it's like, skip bombing, but done right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've, ever, if you've seen any of the test footage for the um, highball te- uh, bombs. Are they similar to the ones that were used... Um... God, I forget the name of the film now. So how exactly did, did those uh, work? Those, those high okay. so squadron you, or something like that when they were using skip bombs on land to get an ammo dump. No, or not quite. Like so, you, so you've obviously you've heard of six one seven and taking out the three German dams. Yes, uh, the dam busters. Yes. So highball was an evolution of that. So instead of looking okay. like a giant spinning back spinning um, oil can full of explosive, except on a massive scale. Um, highball looks like a giant golf ball full of explosives. Um, and the idea of it was that it was slightly smaller, worked on the same principle uh, as with sort of backspin and skip, but because it was smaller, slightly smaller and lighter than the um, dam buster bombs, it could be carried on mosquitoes, which okay. made it viable for use in all sorts of things that you wouldn't use a Lancaster for, including anti-shipping strikes. Oh, that really does look like a golf ball. Yeah. <laughs> the dimples and everything. Yeah. And uh, so they they tested it on HMS Malaya and one of the French battleships that they had floating around at the time. Um, and it worked very well. It's just that by the time they got the release mechanisms, etc., to work, properly the first target they wanted to take out which was Tirpitz had been sunk by tall boys and highball then kind of follows this trend of going around in late world war ii where they're finding targets for it then finding those targets have been destroyed and so although it's technically ready for deployment it never actually gets deployed anywhere because they can't keep anything afloat long enough for them to to drop bombs on it uh 
but when you if there there is some test footage av- uh, on, available online and it is especially for someone who likes ships as much as i do quite disturbing because you just see this thing bouncing merrily along the water and then it's sort of into frame comes the hull of a battleship and it just goes bounce bounce and disappears into the hull of, and there's just literally almost like a cartoon style hole in the shape of the projectile just punched straight into the side as if as if it's made of paper and that's a test that's a test bomb so that's not then involving the detonation of about a third of a ton of explosives inside i, I the my only my only concern would be i think if they if they had hybel working in the way that it historically did you'd probably have people screaming from the heavens about it being instantly <laughs> overpowered because you'd be talking about kind of an instant, the effect, effective, it'd probably be like the effective max damage of a Shikishimo or incomparable shell as a citadel to yeah. practically anything with armor. The subtle saving grace would be if you're in a small light cruiser or a destroyer, it'd probably just go straight through and out the other side and overpen. Well, I mean, uh, instant detonation armament. That's that's what the game tech, uh, definitely needs, right? Yeah. <laughs> totally gauging. Everyone knows this. Yes. Oh well. So yeah, that's poor old Ben. Not 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 exactly a a, a story that's covered in glory, but yeah. one that went on for a disturbingly long period of time. It, it is kind of the fact that it was, you know, converted from a Normandy uh, and then lasted until. Like the mid to late sixties is quite remarkable, really. Yes, yeah. It's, Considering um, it wasn't wasn't particularly, you know, good at what it was designed for. Yeah, it's. it's I think it's just a case of you use what you've got, and when all you've got is that, well, yeah, it sucks to be you, but you, you're stuck with it. So the other. Interesting premium that, that mm. actually might be interesting is the, the battleship Atlantico, which would be a tier eight with nine point two inch secondaries. Yes, which is it is both utterly bizarre in and of itself, but also disturbingly not quite as insane as you'd think. Um, it took me a lot of digging, and I haven't I haven't found the exact design that's involved. I don't know if it was ever actually this particular configuration was actually a specific design because I haven't found it. It could be given the context I'm about to give you. <laughs> um, but I, at the moment, I kind of personally suspect it's a hybrid. So what you've effectively got is in the late 1900s, early 1910s, you have the South American Dreadnought Arms Race. And Armstrongs and Vickers are both competing to see if they can get the contract for what turns first into the Minas Gerais, then turns into um, Rio de Janeiro, which eventually becomes HMS Agincourt. And then eventually after that, there's also a contract for another one called Rio Cuello, which gets cancelled. Now, during the design bid process for uh, Rio de Janeiro, the uh, late to be HMS Agincourt, there are there's this kind of argument going on in the Brazilian Admiralty. One element of them wants a ship with lots and lots of twelve inch guns. Um, their basic justification is that 
yes, the British are building ships with bigger guns, but the Germans aren't. The Germans are still building ships with 12-inch guns, and he thinks more 12-inch guns, therefore, are the best way to go. Um, and then the, another section of the Brazilian Admiralty believes in having the single most powerful ship you can possibly get. So you end up with a number of designs that are prepared, um, but these are all with 16-inch guns. So that's unlike Atlantico, which has 15-inch uh, guns. Um, these designs coming up for uh, for competing for the Rio de Janeiro contract, um, one of them in, in particular, although they're using 9.4-inch guns, does show the kind of thinking that's going on. Um, and there's a few others that use this, but the, the, this particular design has eight 16-inch guns, kind of conventional layout, and then it has six 9.4-inch guns in a pair of twin wing turrets and then a Q-position Q centerline amidships turret, which is very bizarre because it also has a six-inch casement battery immediately below it. So, And there's a few other designs that all look at this kind of similar, similar mm -hmm. kind of layout with... Um, you're in basically a late pre-dreadnought intermediate battery coupled with a dreadnought. Um, but, you know, sa a degree of sanity prevails and that doesn't get all. And then later on, when bidding is going in for Riaquello, then you start to see these, uh, some various battleship designs coming up, a number of which are armed with 16-inch guns but some of which are also armed with 15-inch guns. And there's at least two Vickers designs, 671 and 689, that are armed with 10 15-inch guns laid out pretty much how they have it for Atlantico. So that layout for the main battery definitely existed. Um, it wasn't ordered. Riojuelo uh, wasn't going to look like this. But... The thing is, both of those Vickers designs have a full, let, sort of a, a full six-inch secondary battery. They don't have this nine-point-two-inch battery. So, quite where this one comes from, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, the one thing I will say is that the records for the Armstrong and Vickers designs for this period, especially for the Riquello design competition, are a bit fragmentary. So it's possible that something like this just exists in a design that the reference works that I've got hold of don't necessarily have listed. And, you know, it, it is an evolution, it is a clear evolution of the idea that was come up with for um, one of the uh, Rio de Janeiro concepts. So I, I can see the logic, well, I don't know, scrap that. I don't see the logic in it. It's a terrible design for a actual battleship <laughs> um, but i can see the logic in the context of the design competition it's yes it's completely wacky and off the wall but it's not actually that unusual for the brazilian uh, design competition period okay because uh, one thing i mean i definitely uh I, I can take from it is uh the I mean, I'm, I've got no idea about these 9.2. We don't have any designations for the guns themselves in the stat. It's just 15-inch no. guns, which... I mean, the 9.2 does exist in yeah. this period. It's you know, it's on British armoured cruisers. It's on the 
later pre-Dreadnoughts that have been Lord Nelson's. Um, so it's around. It's definitely, you know, it's definitely the kind of gun that uh, very early 1910s battleship designers might think of including if they were looking for some kind of intermediate battery. It, it why seem, they do it, that is another matter. Yeah, it, it does seem like it might be some earlier version than the whatever hypothetical thing they're using for the the, the high-tier British heavy cruisers, because it, it's mm. one thing we did note last week was that it does have a lower fire chance and yeah. slightly lower yeah. HE damage. Yeah, well, I mean, given that the um, the 9.2s on the, the theoretical British heavy cruisers, obviously some of the designs of which they've incorporated into the game, they were literally using the the last iterations of the 9.2s from mm-hmm. the okay. 1910s and just going, this but slightly updated. So these probably being slightly either that period's version thereof or possibly slightly further back because there were a lot of marks of the 9.2-inch. I mean, the, the the turrets look kind of, not entirely, but they look a, related to the ones that were stuck on Lord Nelson and Agamemnon. So, and I mean, it, it's, it's also possible given that um, Argentina and Chile were both seeking designs at the same time, it's possible that maybe this is one of their designs. Um, although Atlantico is a Brazilian name, which seems to suggest that they are taking it from the uh, Brazilian design tree, uh, tree. And to be perfectly fair, the Brazilians seem to have been the only ones who ever thought of putting an intermediate battery on a dreadnought. So <laughs> um, we'll, we'll have to see um, what further information comes out. Because it could be an amalgam, to be fair. And yeah, like I mean, Mike Marlborough some is. Hypothetical uh, something going on with the, the US yeah. secondary. Yeah. But it's a ship that technically could be built and would float. It might not make much sense, but something like this would function? Uh, yes, to a degree. Um, with that many 9.2-inch twin turrets on, as, as in addition to its 10, 15-inch guns, I'd have some questions about its stability, and I certainly wouldn't want to... I certainly wouldn't want to be amidships because that's an awful lot of barbettes with us sort of servicing some turrets with some fairly hefty shells and charges where the barbettes are right next to the edge of the hull. So I um, wonder what the armor scheme is going to be because the only detail yeah. we have is the, the 32 mil extremity plating. Yeah. I mean, the only, the only other thing that I'm seeing is, sorry, I forgot to mute that. The only other thing I'm seeing that is um, essentially a bit of a giveaway is when you when you look at this as you look at the the picture that we've got, there's no scuttles from about where the bridge is going back at least until after the secondaries run out, which does suggest that whatever they've done for this, it, it does have some kind of full height protection, which is probably what it's going to need to not be a floating citadel xp pinata um but i mean it's, it's gonna be interesting to see it perform in the game i mean it's it's certainly uh it's a design it's a it's a national flavor that has not been tried before <laughs> yeah nothing else with secondaries even remotely close to that in game i don't think um no what 
150 mils, or I think, are the biggest caliber we have on any battleship. Yeah, I mean, give it... fives, something like that. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've effectively welded a couple of Tier 9 yeah. heavy cruisers to either side, so just to be, I guess it'll depend on the accuracy and the fire rate that we get out and range you get out. Well, we determined that uh, you can get it out to the same range as something like, say, the Massachusetts. It does seem like the secondaries are going to be the gimmick of this thing. Mm. Uh, but as to the actual dispersion, uh, I don't think we know what that's going to be like. Yeah. Although yeah, it's this, this yeah. can't this this almost by definition has to be a secondary gimmick battleship based on yes. this. Yeah. No <laughs> yeah, it's just a, it's just a shame that you know if you're gonna if you're gonna give it nine point two inch secondaries, they might as well have gone the whole hog and actually given it the range of nine point two inch guns because I mean they're they're yeah. not casement mounted, they're turreted mounted, so they should theoretically have the same range as the nine point twos you have on well not necessarily the British heavy cruisers because we said they're uh, 1930s, 1940s so, designs. Certainly but... more than the 11.5 or 12 or whatever it is. The most yeah, exactly. Because that, that really would be a bit of a gimmick if you had sustained <laughs> 9.2 inch fire coming off of a battleship. Although interestingly, I, I do find it interesting that once again we're getting a, a kind of British design coming in for another nation's tech tree before we see it in the, uh, in the British um yeah, I mean, certainly given the era from where it's at, um, mm. it, it's interesting to see it also. I, I suspect the secondaries are why it's at tier eight, yes. and they've probably yeah. upload relevant bits mm. to make it fit at tier eight. But um, like all, all the other things at tier eight, pretty much are, are of um, mostly much later designs, kind of thirties and forties designs. When you get yeah. to that point, rather than kind of World War One era dreadnoughts. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it's just interesting me because the the one of the preliminary designs for the Queen Elizabeths, if you ignore the wonderfully odd secondaries on this, one of the preliminary Queen Elizabeths designs did actually resemble quite closely resemble this in terms of its main battery, having having ten fifteen inch guns okay. sort of Iron Duke layout style, um, and that that was basically a slow version, and they ended up going basically drop a turret and go faster mm. which is how you got the original Queen Elizabeth but I mean the, to a certain extent that's pretty much I think why Vickers probably put this design or something close to this design forward because like, well, we've got the drawing already just you know pencil out a, pencil out the 6 inch battery and drop in some 9.2s and we're pretty much done I think for the secondary battleship fans, this one certainly it could be very interesting. The main drawback seems to be it's only 25 knots, which is kind of, I think, slightly faster than Queen Elizabeth. It's around one Yeah, so it's the Queen Elizabeth design speed, um, yeah. but they, they never quite reach that. I mean, given the fact you've on, on this picture, you've obviously got a socking great radar stuck on top of the tripod mast. It's clearly a, uh, well, and some what look like maybe... 40 mil twins up front it's clearly a a proposed world war ii retrofit so i yeah. guess at that point somebody's just decided to it probably started life as a 21 or 23 not designed and somebody's just stuck a bunch of late 1930s power plants in it to get a bit more speed out of it it's, it's a hypothetical refit of a hypothetical ship <laughs> yes <laughs> also a hypothetical refit with us uh anti-air on a british ship yeah so, yeah. I mean, 
at that stage, it probably would have been easier for somewhere like Brazil to get hold of US secondaries, mm. but I don't know. And I mean, we, I mean, to be honest, even even British ships ended up with plenty of 20mm mm. or looking and 40mm Bofors, even though they're neither of those are actually American guns, but we tend to associate them with American ships in World War II. Unless we forget Brazil, actually, I'm pretty sure did come in on the side of the Allies during World War II as yes. well. So it's yes, not a complete it stretch that they would have sailed a hypothetical battleship up to an American yeah. guard. I mean, they're not, they're not, um, they say they kind of, they weren't in at the beginning, but they joined about mid-war, hmm. which um, is better than uh, a lot of other countries. Yes. <laughs> it's a, surpri- a surprising number of countries that had remained neutral suddenly declared war on Germany in 1945, about two weeks before the, the surrender. <laughs> So that then, I think, takes us on to the main topic, which is going to yes. be a line of Italian destroyers and also a Tier 7 French, but with Italian guns destroyer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, well, it's a, having, having discussed, you know, possibly one of the worst ships of its type ever to be built, and then a ship that is a a glorious monstrosity of a hybrid of something that never never saw the light of day. We now have a a tech tree that is eighty percent real, hmm. which is nice. We haven't had one of those for a while. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's kind of refreshing. Uh, the concept is definitely a bit strange. They're all mm-hmm. very short range in terms of their guns, and they have a long range but very slow, fairly low damage torpedoes and fuel smoke. Yes. So quite how they end up being uh, once they become um, ships that we can at least look at on the game as opposed to what they've announced here. I mean, mm. there'll almost certainly be some changes, but uh, maybe we could start with kind of the uh, the real-life Italian destroyer philosophy, which I'm guessing was entirely geared, uh, A, towards operations in the... The, uh, uh, the Mediterranean and be probably largely geared towards if they had to fight the French. Yes. So, yeah. So they're, they're almost entirely built with the French in mind. Um, they, the, the, the thing is the Italian destroyer design experience is actually quite interesting and quite unique. They initially are actually going for a lot of, small lightweight designs um that i mean in an in an era when kind of the because all of these are post-world war one designs so in an era when the kind of the standard for the new interwar fleet destroyer has been set first by the clemson and wicks classes and then by the british with their alphabet named classes and you're kind of looking in 11, 12, 1300 tons and gradually increasing. The Italians actually keep their displacement down to around about 1,000 tons for quite a long period of time. Um, but they are the first to innovate into and, and, and stick with twin mounts, which is basically, I mean, it's one of the, the, the smaller, smaller issue, um, not issues, one of the smaller flavor pieces with this line. If you look at them, they've all got twin mounting. Whereas, yeah, even the low tier ones, yeah, like yeah, even some of the higher tier US destroyers are still single mounts. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the single mount goes through some some lines. Never never go for mm-hmm. twins, and uh, as you say, the rest 
twin twin mountings you only really tend to see poking around in mostly 1930s and onwards destroyers and sometimes not even then the japanese kind of are usually seen to have been leading the charge with the fabukis uh, in the late 1920s but actually the italians were there first and it's it's one of the ways they keep actually keeping the weight down because if if you're having four, a four gun armament which is pretty standard for an interwar destroyer if you have four guns in a pair of twin mounts that takes up less length of deck space than four individual mounts spaced out and so that that allows them to as i say keep the keep weight down if necessary keep speed up and it becomes to a degree a, de- a defining feature of italian destroyers all the way through although we do have a little bit of a, um, a time warp going up the line <laughs> so um yeah, I, they're they're obviously obviously so with the you say with the like short range high damage armament and long range low speed torpedoes. That's kind of a design flavor for for them. It's not particular. It's not a particular thing that's notable about Italian destroyers in real life. But everything's got to have its own flavor. Yeah, I did. I did think that that's probably just wargaming going. Okay, what's what what are these going to be like to differentiate them from? everything else rather than because occasionally you'll get lines where the the flavoring game does reflect something about the real life ships or philosophies but in this case it's kind of hard to yeah and i mean because the thing is so until you get up to until you get to the theoretic everything's got 4.7 inch guns 120 mil guns which is a fairly standard caliber for mm-hmm. interwar destroyers so it, there's, it's not like a it's not sort of a five point something or even a six inch gun like some of the destroyers of the, that period have. It, it's just, you know, it's typical armament on a British destroyer. It's typical armament on most of the early Japanese destroyers. The uh, the Americans have the five inch, which is not exactly a million miles away. Um, so it, it's a fairly standard caliber. But you've, um, I don't know, do we want to go through them? Let's go through the historical ones first. I mean, yeah, we could we could yeah. do a brief a brief tour for. I mean, that's why we you know we know <laughs> about the actual history of these things. So. Yeah, so we've got uh, for first, and this is the slightly weird weird thing in that the naming conventions on this line are a little bit all over the place. As um, and so with uh, advanced apologies to it- any Italian listeners, because I'm probably going to mangle at least one, if not more, of these. But we start with the uh, Curtatone class, which straddling the line between destroyer and glorified torpedo boat um but it kind of sets the theme for quite a lot of these ships it's got its four guns it's got six torpedo launchers it's a very small vessel um i mean you can kind of see that even in the in the the, the pictures i'm just looking at the, some of the release pictures you can see it's physically tiny it's it's sort of a, just over 800 tons mm. But you know, it's a tier two. There's a there's quite uh, to be fair. There are a few quite small ships in that at that point. Uh, then you've got uh, Nazario Sauro, which is it, it's a Sauro class destroyer. Weirdly enough, it um uh, it's kind of accurate, I guess, because that is the first of the class, and this is effectively the same armament. As the um, as the Coratatone, 
but just on a slightly bigger hull, which in real life they used to put a slightly heavier anti-aircraft armament and some more mines on it, but otherwise it's basically the same ship. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got Turbine, which is a step up again, um, and you're still looking at exactly the same armament, 100 to 420 millimeter guns, six torpedo tubes. They're, you know, they're even all, you know, all still in um, a pair of triple launchers. It's just a bit faster. So, and you can kind of see that in the pictures. The, the difference between the Sauron and the Tavine is not, not massive. Um, then you get the, the, the mass, Mastrale, I think is how it's pronounced. And this is where we have a bit of a, uh, not quite, well, we're not quite up to the time jump, but we're almost at a, a time jump because the, you've well, we're got. Going, going from kind of 20s designs to 30s at this point. Yes. Just to put yes. things in context time wise. Yeah. And the, the, the reason, uh, and you'll see what, why I say this is a bit of a time jump in a minute because um, the Mastrale. We're still at the same um, same main battery, same torpedo battery. It's just slightly far again, slightly faster, slightly larger, slightly better AA. Yeah. Um, but you can see, you, you almost you, you can see just by looking at it. As you said, it's a 1930s design. It's got the the rounded bridge structure that kind of becomes characteristic of a lot of 1930s Italian designs. The guns have gone from well, they're still mounts. But you can kind of see on the well, Corretatone, it's very much mm. just a pair of guns. Um, mm. That Sauro and Turbine. Yeah, it's not even a gun shield. <laughs> yeah, you've got gun yeah. shield, and and now you're moving on to almost turrets. Um, then and and then you have. I'm not entirely sure why, but because so far you've got, um, apart from. Well, Nazario Sauro, I guess, as I say, it's first in the class, it's technically accurate. So, so far, we've gone with either class names or first first ship in the class name. It's pretty much the same thing. And then we get Aviere, which is actually a Soldati class. Um, I'm guessing the reason they've gone with that is Aviere is the first to be laid down, and um, there is no destroyer Soldati because it's... Um, okay, as the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is again six torpedoes um, four 4.7 inch um, it does have a single gun which you can see if you if you look yeah midships yeah, yeah. midships that's that's a star shell gun so that was that doesn't have any offensive firepower it's just to be used for in real life for illuminating the targets um what that role that will have other than decoration when the ship's actually in game, I don't know. <laughs> they might have made it an AA gun or something. Stats. I don't think that's listed as uh although the stats for the this one are clearly wrong because they just say the main battery is a single one twenty mil gun, which is clearly yeah, that's, not correct. No, that's not the case. Um yeah, and so these two are as the their sort of successive nineteen thirties designs. Um so that's well they've they've got they've got this um, the Oriani class in the, between them, but you know, they're nineteen thirties designs. And then we get to the last in the run of historical designs before we pick up pick up again at tier ten. Um this is uh Luca Tarigo or 
I'm, I'm going to call it that. Um, now, this is a navigatory class destroyer, and this is why I say it's a bit of a time jump, because we're now jumping back to the late 1920s. Okay. Um, because the the most of the, in fact, almost all the Italian interwar destroyer designs keep following this same pattern. You know, pair of twin 4.7-inch mounts, six torpedoes, launchers. The navigatories are kind of, because it's in the late 1920s, the Fabukias have just come out. Everyone's kind of looking at, can we build a super destroyer? This is kind of the Italian answer to the super destroyer. The French Navy's building its own super destroyers as well, so this is their version. Um, and it has three twin 4.7-inch rounds. It's got six guns. Still got the same six uh, torpedo launchers, but it, it's got a 50% increase in firepower. The Italians then promptly conclude that the navigatories cost too much uh, compared to what they offer and go back down to four-gun ships, which I guess is why this is out of out of sync with everything else mm. because they've they've gone up in uh, they, they've put as a fifty percent increase in firepower, so they've put it at uh, tier seven, even though it's technically earlier than the tier uh, tier fives and tier sixes. So and what's was there a reason why the Italians just stuck with the same armament basically for so many ships? Like, was there no reason to innovate or to go bigger? A lot of the time, and you see this actually across almost all the navies, um, the British the British interwar destroyers are effectively armed identically um, with four 4.7-inch guns. It's just the British stick with four singles um, rather than two twins on the Italians. Um, and also, actually, the British tend to stick with almost the same torpedo armament for a long period of time. They start ramping it up to um, quad launchers and then quintuple launchers later on, but um, the vast majority of interwar British destroyer designs have a standard main armament. The vast majority of American interwar destroyer designs have the standard main armament. They're the four five-inch guns, like you get on the Sims and Benson and that kind of stuff. Um, so this is all everyone is pretty much doing the same thing the only ones where you're seeing any kind of real evolution is france where they're going from just relatively small destroyer to destroyer to super destroyer to honestly almost a light cruiser in their destroyer design period and the japanese who similar to the french go from almost torpedo boat to destroyer and then they go into kind of the heavy destroyer the fabuki type and then Hatsuharas, Kageras, all that, where they're desperately trying to maintain that same six-gun arm, various different shaped wrappers. So, yeah, if you take if you take the five big navies as a whole, the kind of sticking with the main armament as you all all through the interwar period is actually more common than not. And the Italians are just kind of an example of that. They, it's just their flirtation with the super destroyer comes in the uh, late 1920s, as opposed to for the British, say, with the tribal class that's coming in the mid to late 1930s. Uh, there, that, that's the that's the last historical design until the Tier 10. Um, and I guess we'll probably just quickly mention the Tier 10 before we drop back to the 8 and 9. So the Tier 10, um, believe it or not, is not actually a destroyer. Is it it's all Capitani Romani's, if I'm... Yes, mistaken. yes. So this is actually, actually technically a light cruiser. 
albeit that it sits in this very weird place because it's a st- it's not built it's acknowledged to be a light cruiser because of its sheer size and its um original designation but his, they end up being used as flotilla leaders so that they exist in the same operational space i guess as the atlantic do Mm-hmm. Albeit they're about mm-hmm. half the displacement, about maybe sixty sixty five percent of the displacement of an Atlant- Atlanta class, and as a result, what the, you know they've got eight guns, not the Atlantas, what fourteen or so, <laughs> um, sixteen, no, sixteen guns if you include both wing types. Um, so they've got uh, one hundred thirty five millimeter guns. So obviously they're a bit bigger than point seven inches, five point three inch. Uh, they've got eight of them. They've gone up to quadruple torpedo launchers and a relatively heavy anti-aircraft armament. But even at that, having said that, they are of approximately the same speed, firepower, both in torpedoes and guns, etc., um, as something like the, the really big French super destroyers, the ones they're building right at the end of, of their construction period. And it's basically what they're designed to counter. So um, they're fast. Yeah, I just look at that forty-one knots. Yeah, uh, I mean, you would have to like you would basically be unarmored. I'm guessing. Yes, <laughs> so you've got a li- you've got basically you've got splinter protection on the turrets, and that's it. Uh, which is why there's so many arguments over what exactly you you designate them as because say they start life officially as a as a sm- very very small cruiser they're used once they're completed due to the war interfering with their construction they're used as flotilla leaders but they're the thing is their displacement they're they're almost 4000 tons they're verging on cruiser displacement but they're also technically at the very very upper end of destroyer displacement and as you said they have no protection so they could be that you can see them as exceptionally large destroyers, which is obviously all gaming the tier ten. Uh, the only thing I could think of that would be kind of comparable in being kind of cruiser sized, mm. or you know, displacement, but not really, is the the really fast. Um, I'm going to draw this up. The Abdiel class mine layers. Yes, which were. Basically, cruiser-sized mine layers and extremely fast. I think it ended up being used more as like couriers than yes, couriers and transport troop, very fast troop and supply transports yeah, as well. Running around the not quite forty knots, but you know, considering the yeah. size of the ship, that's pretty impressive. Probably see them as a premium at some point. I suspect <laughs> maybe, yeah. But yeah, so, I mean, the, it, sorry. So, so basically, what they tell it instead is that so what the French did then was like, what ship could we design to counter the French big destroyers? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, the Italian and French naval buildups during the interwar period basically consist of trying to mirror match each other, um, which is weird because they simultaneously are desperate to not go through a major naval arms race. To the extent that even though they're pretty much on opposite sides of the equation navally for the entire period, they actually do sit down a couple of times and hash out their own treaty separate to the Washington Treaty, which is effectively says, 
if you don't build this, I won't build something in response. Therefore, we both save money. Agreed. Um, and to be fair, that actually, for the most part, holds up. Um, it only starts to collapse once the Germans start getting involved. Because um, the Germans, as I mentioned earlier, they build the Deutschlands. The French, therefore, start building the Dunkirks. Then the Germans build the Scharnhorst. So the French stop construction on Strasbourg and redevelop it to better fight the Scharnhorsts. And although the French are very clearly saying, you know, we're building these ships to counter the new rise in Kriegsmarine, the Italians are looking at it and going, yes, but the law, there's nothing in the laws of physics that prevents yeah. you moving them from Brest to Toulon. <laughs> so we need to build a response, which is where the Littorios end up coming from. They do initially actually look at doing something similar to the Dunkirks, but they did eventually. We suddenly just decide, you know, let's stuff this for a laugh. We're building a 35,000 ton battleship. It's <laughs> compliant, honest. Yes. And that prompts the Richelieu's, and then the Richelieu and prompt the um, Roma and Impero, the second pair of Latorios, and the whole thing just, yeah. The... It's interesting because like, everyone thinks of naval arms race and it's you know the build-up to World War One that springs to mm -hmm. mind, but equally there was all this going on you know, around the Med and with, with France and Germany in uh, World War Two as well. All yeah. World War II. And, and, and it really is all driven by the Germans. So, I mean, that's the, why the, the second set of Richelieu's are um, laid down at the Clemenceau and Gascogne, and the uh, Alsaces are under consideration and under design because the, now the Germans are building the Bismarcks. And it, it, it's kind of, it's, it's become its own self-feeding loop because hmm. the French are building because of the Germans. The Italians build because of the French. And as soon as the Italians build something, now the French are thinking about having to fight the Germans and the Italians, so they have to build to counter both of those which of course makes the italians who are thinking about just fighting the french on their own build to count and it just yeah it just becomes i mean th th as you say like the british german arms race the anglo germans arms race world war one is confusing enough and um the south american dreadnought arms race is a three-way arms race but at least they're all thinking about each other individually the weird thing about about that the sort of the i guess you call it the mediterranean arms race is that one of the parties isn't in the Mediterranean and is also allied to one of the ones that is. So they're not actually thinking about fighting each other. But as a result, you get this weird cyclic loop that just leads to massive escalation. And it, it's everywhere. I mean, cruisers, destroyers, those are the super destroyers, which we're looking at here, and um, and the battleships. Who knows? Uh, maybe, I mean, we're kind of going back to the, to the, the beyond, but... Uh... <laughs> Maybe if the Germans had been a bit more proactive building carriers, you know, we might have had more French encounter, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, yeah, you never know. Um the front yeah. They might put a bit more emphasis on completing Graf Zeppelin at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um but I guess that that brings us back to our our two Yes, and tier nine, one of which looks distinctly Soviet, but of course, you know, the the link between Italian naval design and Soviet naval design is, I think, fairly well established in most people's minds that have any kind of knowledge about this. This period. yes. So um, the first one, the Tier Eight Vittorio Quinoberti. This is a well. The, firstly, the name is a weird one because if they were going to name anything after Quinoberti, they would have been a battleship. But whatever, they've chosen this. It's at least it was recognisably Italian. But I mean, it, it would be. 
the the equivalent i'm sure for italian for italian viewers having a destroyer named this would be like um the americans getting a destroyer named after a u.s state or uh i don't know president or something yeah or something like that but effectively um if you if you actually if you look back at the tier five this is where it it is derived from so mm-hmm. this is a a project which looked at the mastrale type and was kind of like because remember as we said the mastrale um, and the avieri are both 1930s ships so they were looking at the mastrales and going can we replicate the navigatories at least in armament if not layout i.e can we go back up to a six-gun design um sort of super destroyer and eventually they decided no it's too expensive um we're not going to do that and they they didn't go for it but the paper design did exist and this is what they've they've resurrected for the tier eight and as i say you, you can you can pretty much see it. if you look at the uh the funnel and the bridge the amidships and quickly scroll up to the mastrale it's basically the same thing with a bit more radar added um it's kind of just, it's a lengthened Mastrale. They've stuck in it. They've stuck a super firing twin 4.7 inch mount on it. And from the looks of it, because I haven't seen the specs, but from the looks of it, it looks like they've actually increased the torpedo armament. Kind of hard uh, to tell, but that does look like double decked torpedo launches. So we'll have this stuff somewhere. Yeah, let me see what it says. They kind of look like. Two times two, four. Yeah, they're actually mm. doubles. So they're kind of compact yeah. double. Um, um, yeah, so they've they've upped the torpedo, but I mean it's it's well, it's a fairly logical. To be fair, it's like of all the paper designs, it's a fairly logical outgrowth. Yeah, um, and it, it is something the Italians did seriously consider. Then were going to build, except they decided they couldn't afford. Basically, it was going to turn out to be cheaper to build more smaller ships. Okay, um, so th- so it's a pretty pretty neat little one. And then, as you say, the uh, Adriatico again, not how the Italians would have named a destroyer, but never mind. <laughs> and yeah, th- th- this is basically taken Tashkent, the Soviet super destroyer, which to be fair, was designed by the Italians and mostly built by the Italians. Uh, Tashkent is basically a, a, an Italian destroyer with Russian guns strapped to it. Because the... The idea initially with Tashkent was for the Italians to design it with Russian input, then the Russians would build it, then it turned out the Russian shipyards couldn't build it, so the Italian shipyards had to build it, and they just kind of sailed the entire thing, minus the guns, over to Russia, where they stuck the guns on it and said, yes, look, it's been made in... (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, yeah, this, this is... This basically just seems to go, well, what if we took the Tashkent the same that basic that same basic hull, and we stuck Italian guns on it instead of Russian guns. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the, the rest of them all been 120. This is the first of them that gets to 135, so that we yes. tiered 10 as well, which are yeah. going to be the same 135s. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose it, for gameplay terms, it makes a it makes a certain logic of of progression because then up to up to the tier sixes, you've got your 420 mils. Then you get to live with 620 mils for seven and eight. And then you retain six guns, but you go up to the 135s at tier nine. And then you get 
another pair of them at tier 10. So it's actually a fairly nice logical progression in terms of gun numbers. <laughs> but so, again, it's, it's, it's not the most implausible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously also going to be very fast, which I guess matches up with, with the, uh, yeah, the tier that's, 10. That's fairly... Up till tier 5, there's a bit of variation, but tier 5 upwards, they're all kind mm. of 38, 39, and then you get up to the tier 10, it's 41 knots. So the, um, it's mostly quite a fast line. And I'm guessing the Italians placed quite an emphasis on that as they did with the cruisers. That they yeah, the, the whole Italian fleet is kind of looking at, at speed as a as a priority. They're not, they're not so much worried about range. The range does increase. I mean, one of the things that comes with making larger and larger, even though the arm, main armament doesn't really change um, in for what, what for the game is the lower tiers. Um, the additional range does give you more versatility, even operating in somewhere like the Mediterranean, because it means you can go somewhere and stay there. Or you can do all sorts of lovely complex maneuvers and still get home. But at its heart, the Italian Navy is still looking at, we're based in the central Mediterranean. We don't really have that many interests beyond the Mediterranean, at least for a good chunk of time. And as long as they can get to and from points of operation within that, within that area, that that's their kind of basic happy minimum. Mm-hmm. And as a result, if you don't need to carry vast amounts of fuel um, and your hull size is gradually is, uh, at least after the first couple, relatively decent, you start looking at speed. So was, was, there the a, was there a reason why the Italians never built something like a Tashkent for themselves? I mean, if their shipyards were already building for the Russians, uh, like didn't they like the design themselves or... Did they have no need for them? It, it's basically it's the same reason why the, the Tier 8s weren't built when they designed them. Uh, it's effectively cost. They, they, they want... They, there's... With anything, whether it's cruisers, battleships, destroyers, when you start to push the upper end of the, the spectrum in terms of you know um, so speed protection and firepower, you end up spending an awful lot of money for relatively minimal improvements and the Italians because they were looking at you know they wanted a relatively decent sized escort fleet and by this point they're building four modern battleships and renovating four older ones they need a fairly large one Um, it just makes more sense for them to build more numerous smaller than it does to build a few hard hitting ones until their hand is completely forced um, which is that's kind of when you see things like the Mogadors coming out or or being planned for the French. Then the Italians kind of throw their hands up in there and they're like, "Okay, fine, this has gone on long enough." Um, when it's, I suppose it's kind of at its most basic level, they they've gone from thinking it's fine if the French build these slightly larger destroyers because if we can kind of get two for one or three for two. I mean, with our ships, then we should be able to win. But once you get up to something like the Le Fantasques or Mogadors, it's fairly obvious that these things can probably trash two or three standard destroyers because they can dictate the range of the engagement with their speed, and they've got the firepower to put down the average destroyer pretty quickly, at least on paper. And at that point, the Italians have to go, okay, fine, we're going to play this game now. 
um, which is where you get things like the Capitani Romanis and uh, a few other. The, the, the Italians actually are probably the past masters of skirting the line between what is a very traditional. They they do this quite often. Um, there's a couple of small cruiser classes that obviously aren't involved here and aren't involved in the main Italian cruiser line either because they're too small. But they they sit in this kind of three to five thousand ton range where everyone always argues about whether they're they're very small cruisers or very large destroyers. Mm -hmm. So was there actually a, is there a downside to having twin uh, mounts? Of you said like the Italian were one of the first who did this, but obviously not everyone just copied them. So was there a downside to this? Um, so a twin mount is heavier. Um, and especially on destroyers where for a long time what they call unpowered mounts, i.e. mounts that are moved mostly by human muscle, I mean, you're standing and shoving it, they might be cranked or whatever, um, but there's no motors involved. Um, obviously, a twin mount is going to weigh more and so be harder to maneuver. Once you start accepting more and more power, less of it. Um, it also means if one of your mounts takes a hit, with, with the Italian mm -hmm. destroyers for the most of them, if you've got four guns and one mount takes a hit down half, and the entirety of your armament, your forward or rear face, as opposed to single mounts where you only lose 25%, um, those are the two main difficulties. The other thing is you've got to supply ammunition at twice the rate to a single location. Um, albeit at the same time, it means you only need one ammunition for of the two separate ones. So that's that's kind of swings around about. But it's mostly the the weight and the vulnerability of losing a, a single mount and losing a good portion of your armor. The, the, the disadvantages of twin mounts for destroyers, but that you get a lot of benefits. I mean, you, obviously, they've got you've got the benefit you're sending two shells down range instead of one. Hopefully, on roughly the same ballistic path, uh, and they take up less space. Um, overall, in terms of uh, sort of surface area, but it's, it's mostly the weight that they that most the reason why most most nations don't go on to, on destroyers more more than anything else. Weight is at a significant premium. Is that? I mean, is this maybe one of the reasons why they stuck with the hundred and twenty mil armament for so long? Because obviously, bigger guns. You know, bigger punch, but also bigger shells to to heft around. Yes, weight. yeah. I mean, the the shell weight is a huge, huge issue um, for everybody during the interwar period um, at this kind of caliber. And you you see this reflected not just in destroyer main batteries, but uh, cruiser secondaries and battleship secondaries as well. And it, even more so once dual purpose guns start getting involved, because everyone's looking at kind of. We want to fire the heaviest shell possible because that's got the biggest amount of stopping power. But at the same time, um, if you make the if you make the shell too large, then people won't be able to easily carry it around, possibly at all, or even if they can initially, if you're firing dozens and yeah, people's arms get tired. Yes, yeah. exactly. And um, th this is where you can get very weird things, like even kind of the average strength of people from that nation can come into play. Um, 
which are like things like average height, which has a certain effect on on your overall average average strength, can to a certain degree come into play. And this is why you it's one of the reasons. So it's a it's a minor factor, but it is a factor why you get some nations are going with four inch, some with four point seven, some with five. Some are trying to go higher. Um, the other problem is that once you start going much above caliber you the, the the weight just gets too heavy to move um you just can't expect someone to do it and so you have to split the um split the shell into the shell itself and a cartridge like you have in battleships you have multiple hmm. propellant cartridges for the for ship of this size you can get away with one cartridge and that's fine now you the weight's back down to relatively easy to handle but you've now got to load two things and handle two things which slows down your rate of fire quite significantly um once power assistance and to varying and varying degrees of automation start coming in in world two some of those issues are mitigated because you know let's say with a i don't know 5.5 inch or 5.25 inch gun if you have to pick up a combined uh, cartridge and shell and carry it 15 20 yards to the gun that's going to take a lot out of you whereas if you've got a a much more automated and semi-power assisted loading scheme where maybe the shell pops up three yards away from the gun it's still a fairly hefty shell but you can move a lot more of them before you start getting tired and yeah so with the italians for a long time the four point the 4.7 inches it's a nice it's a nice medium of stopping power also um easy to fire rapidly clear story of compromise as with most areas of yeah design. yeah yeah and and to be fair i mean the italians they, they deserve credit for just saying no this works we're sticking with mm-hmm. this um as opposed to the british which <laughs> there's in the interwar period for secondaries and dual purpose and aa you have the four in Five inch, the four point seven inch, the five point five inch, the five point two five inch, um, the five point one inch, which they try to stick on submarines for some bizarre reason, and it's not even an escalating path. It's literally it goes up and down all over the place. Five point five, the heaviest of those. It shows up. Calibers get weird as well. I know that much. Yeah, yeah, but uh, then the five point five, it shows up on hood at the beginning, um, along with the four, and it kind of, but they all trends down eventually. They end up. 4.5, which up until very recently, actually the 4.5 inch that was developed in the 1930s in an evolved form was still the main ar- main gun armament of British war. In fact, it still is for the Type 23 frigates. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's yeah. Britain had a lot to answer for, and then that's just the calibers. That's before you get into different types of gun. There's like 20 different marks of some of those, those guns. Um, yeah, but the, yeah, the French calibers. Yeah, you say French calibers at the low to mid sizes are incredibly bizarre sometimes because you'd expect you'd e- either expect them to make sense. You expect guns to make sense in either metric or imperial, depending on what what the nation is using. Um, which is why you get like six point one or five point nine or um, eighteen point one inch guns because actually the nation that's developed them has developed them they're close to but in metric. Uh, I mean, like technically, Bismarck's fifteen-inch guns are actually fourteen point nine six-inch guns. Rounds it up because that's all because um, the three eighteen one millimeter. 
but the French, some of the French calibers are very bizarre, but they're, they're um, I think I explained on a dry dock at one point, they're a wonderful bit of legal fig leafing. Because when you look at the calibers, <clears throat> they make no sense in either. They're sort of multiple decimal points of measurements for inches, but also mes- multiple decimal points of measurements for millimetre. And you think, where on earth has it come from? And, <clears throat> excuse me, is it? They had it, to fit I, some treaty, I guess. No, what it is, is that when you look back at the the 18, 24, 32, and 36, and 42-pounder guns they were using on their ship at the age of sail, obviously back when they didn't worry about caliber so much, it's just this is the weight of the shot, mm-hmm. eventually somebody actually measured the calibers, and of course, because no one was setting out to have a fixed calibre, it's just it fits, it fits a ball that weighs 32 French pounds, which are different from, from British pounds. Um, they then measure them, measure them, and you get these odd measurements. It's mm-hmm. literally the gun bore size that can fit a 32-pound cannonball. And they just stick with those measurements for ages. Um, and the the only sense I can make of it is that it's easier to tell someone, look, we've made a slightly better version of the previous gun, therefore we should have it, than it would be to say, we've invented a brand new gun. Because if you say we've invented a brand new gun with perhaps slightly saner caliber, everyone's going to start wondering, well, that's going to be, that, you know, this is very expensive and you should stop doing mm-hmm. this. Whereas if you say we've just improved the previous gun, they're slightly less suspicious, even though you have basically invented a new gun and actually made things much more difficult for yourself and probably more expensive in the long run because you've got to calibrate all your measurements to these yeah. bizarre fractions of uh, uh, fractions of a millimetre. I don't know, this weird mix of like 130 and 139 and all these sort of... Yeah, it's like 138.74 yeah. millimetre. But yeah, for, fortunate. I mean, if there there are some happy crossovers, like the 20 just quite happily equates to 4.7, 4. and the 105 is a 4, but yeah, sometimes you get some, some very odd calibers. So... But, it- could it be that because the British like had more money to blow, so they were very inventive and they maybe offered more contracts and people came up with all sorts of weird stuff to justify selling their product, while like the Italians and the French, they basically just stuck with what they got because they couldn't invest so much in innovation? Um, to a degree, yes. Um, I think the other problem, to be honest, the... A lot of the British interwar medium gun caliber experience or light gun caliber experience is also it it has the problem of they're trying to be they're simultaneously trying to be unified but also failing at that horribly. Um, whereas if you look at say the Italians, the Italians kind of just go, you know what, stuff it. We're having ninety millimeter AA guns and every other major capital ship, and we're keeping the 120s for the smaller ships. Whereas the British are constantly searching for a single uh, sort of four-point-something or five-point-something inch gun, which they can have as the main armament on destroyers and then the, and the secondary armament on battleships. Basically a universal small calibre, but they never quite yeah. 
but they never quite manage it because they're looking at it that you've got the people who are designing the battleships who are more interested in stopping power for going after destroyers um, and such like and the and the and the people designing the destroyers and to a certain extent the cruisers who are more interested in ease of handling for prolonged fire because you know, it's the main armament on the destroyers and probably going to see more action on the cruisers than most people would be comfortable with and it gets worse when the dual purpose thing in dual purpose anti-aircraft use you want a relatively large shell but you want to be at you obviously for obvious reasons want to feed it in as and as often as possible so all of a sudden the I'm big having to go for high angles of elevation within post its own set of design yeah factors. so obviously at that point you don't want a big heavy shell um so that kind of to get the individual stopping power of the shell becomes less important than how many you can throw out but the people who are constantly designing the battleships are always looking for that, which is why you get attempts to make first the six-inch dual purpose. That doesn't work out. So, And, you know, the destroyer designers are going, well, we could use a 4.5 or a 4.7. We could probably make that dual purpose. And then the at the upper end, they're like, no, but we don't quite think the stopping power is good enough, so we're going to go with a 5.25, which is how you end up with that. Um yeah, and then at the lower end, you've got kind of the four-inch is developed as versus the dedicated AA gun um, because the six-inch isn't dual-purpose when the Nelsons are designed. Um, they try and make it dual-purpose. And so you've got this you've got four-inch AA gun, six-inch secondary, and they're sort of both single-purpose. And then in the middle, you've got this 4.7-inch, which is the standard destroyer gun, and then there's constant arguments back and forth, which I say then you, the 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 heavy the heavy stopping power guys step down a bit to the five point two five. The guys who just want rapid fire four inch up a bit four point five. The four point seven gets kind of left in the middle because and ends, um, ends up actually being pretty disastrous because they never quite get round to developing a proper AA mount for it. Um, and also, it's a very long barrel gun. This is the other thing. It's the four point seven theoretically good potential as an anti-aircraft weapon but it's also a very long barrel weapon as opposed to something like the five inch 38 which means it has quite a lot of recoil which helps give it range and stop and stopping power to make up for the slightly lighter shell against surface targets but it also means if you put it up at like 80 degrees elevation it goes down mm. when you fire it by a considerable distance which means you either have to put it on an implausibly high mount which you do or you have to de- excavate a gun pit for it, which they also won't do. So you end up with it just going up 40 degrees, which turns out to be a very bad idea when you're being dive bombed from about 80 degrees. Um, and yeah, so eventually they end up with, they end up settling on the 4.5 inch, finally. I mean, they had the opportunity to do that in the early 1930s because like HMS Ark Royal launches with 4.5 inch dual purpose guns, uh, Renown, um, Valiant and Queen Elizabeth batteries and at the end toward the end of the war you forget things like the daring class which have 4.5 inch dual purpose batteries mm-hmm. but at the higher end of things people can't quite let go of the idea of just a bit more stopping power please which is why you get the king George. so yeah um the, the british did a lot of things right uh which you know sometimes gets a bit overlooked and unfairly derided in when people look at the history of the interwar and world war ii navies but the dual purpose and destroyer main armament saga for 
the Royal Navy is not one of those things. Yeah. It's, it, it's a horrible mess. This, this is, it, it sounds like one of those things where it all just comes down to kind of politics and personalities within the Royal Navy. And, like, you know, you can look back at it and think, it would be, the same solution would be to have, you know, your, your battleship whatever secondary that's optimized for that, and then your, your cruiser slash destroyer. Um, yeah, caliber gun. Which yeah, I mean the the, the Americans fire. pretty much got it got mm-hmm. it right. Um, I mean, I mean, for a while they have the five inch twenty five, the dedicated AA, and the five inch. I think it's the five inch fifty four. So you've got to be careful with that one because they do develop another long barrel five inch towards the end of the war. And I can never remember off the top of my head which way around it is it's because there's a five inch fifty four and a five inch fifty one. I think the fifty four is pre war and the fifty one is the post war. But anyway, so they have a long barrel five inch for anti surface short barrel AA work. but in the early 1930s-ish they go with they get the 5 inch 38 which is kind of this happy medium mm-hmm. and then they literally put that on everything it's like destroy a main armament 5 inch 38 um, anti-aircraft armament on cruisers 5 inch 38 dual purpose armament on battleships it's also the 5 inch 38 <laughs> they've got that they've got that spot on um yeah, which as I say, the British could have done that with a four point five, but didn't in a rather spectacular fashion. So, um, yeah, the one last ship we have to talk about on this list is mm-hmm. kind of fictional, but kind of not, from what I can tell, because the Italians did have some captured Guepard class destroyers, along with I think what was it like some. I was reading this earlier, some uh, captured, like, Yugoslavian ones, and I think... Uh, no, it was just French and Yugoslavian. I managed to find the page. Um, and there was two of the Guepard class that were in as uh, FR-21 and FR-24, but there was no FR-25 Guepard Yes, class. so... Kind of, sort of, fictional? Yeah, of? So, so, so what... What seems to have happened here, I think I think this is what Wargaming are going for, is that, as you say, yeah, a couple of the Gepards are put into service with the Italians. But um, if you look at what happened to them, um, the Italian ones, well, well one they're put into Italian service, in an, a way similar to what happens to a number of the American um, destroyers in the latter part of the war, they the, the Americans start removing torpedo launchers in favour of more anti-aircraft guns. And from what I've, from what I've been able to find out, this is kind of what happens to the the Italian versions. They they increase the anti-aircraft armament at the expense of torpedo payload. Whereas um, this one, although they, although it says in their description that they've replaced the anti-aircraft guns with Italian versions, I think in the stats, unless I've missed something, it still has, yeah, it still has its two triple torpedo tubes. So I, I have a feeling what they've done here is they've just said, okay, we're going to have a an additional vessel which has a, a non-historical loadout, i.e. we're keeping, basically we're keeping the original torpedo launcher armament, 
but in all other respects is the it is uh, it's really historical in all other respects the same that the the fr21 and fr24 would be I almost, it would almost be more interesting if it was one of the Yugoslav ones, because I don't think we've really got any. No. No, we haven't, have we? I mean, a lot of people... Um, strangely enough, for a Navy that didn't have a tremendous number of ships, um, the I, I have had more than more than number of requests to cover the Yugoslavia. I think they would make vessels for the game you'd have to stick them under the pan-european tree though mm-hmm. i expect we'll see them at some point i mean even as just yeah, i mean walk i mean probably just went for the ship that already had like the the model it's easy yeah, to it's, like it's, make it's a premium only... when you already yeah. have model it's fairly it. copy paste it's 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 got some it'll have some a differences compared to the, the guepar i'm sure but in terms mm. of its guns and everything else uh it, it's basically you know yeah the model and, uh, they are having game i think pretty much yeah and it's it's uh, yeah i mean it's it really allows as you say it allows them most of the model so it's let's face it a tier 7 but also let's face it for a destroyer in the game you probably want a couple of triple torpedo launchers a lot more than you want a handful of medium aa <laughs> 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 unless unless you're a Holland, you don't really care about your AA to destroy. Yeah, there's there's not yeah. that many destroyers where the, the AA really does mean that much. Uh, yeah. It is I mean they have kind of made this in uh I wouldn't say opposition to the main line, but they've they've kind of inverted it in that it's much more like other nations. Uh in fact it's actually got a pretty good gun range for tier mm. seven seven kilometers. Uh, but it's only got eight kilometer torpedoes. Yeah, which I suppose, weirdly enough, probably is going to make it a bit of a knife fighter because it's got it's it's if your if your main battery and your torpedo launchers have roughly the same range, you're probably going to end up fighting inside both. Which at that point is probably going to encourage you to use your torpedoes because mm. they do more damage to more things, which is going to end end up with you getting quite close will... close in. It will be interesting to see. I mean, obviously, that that's a definite possibility with the, the like the Americans, for in, instance, are probably the, the best example, just because they have that incredibly fast turret traverse. But if they have the same French turret traverse, and that's actually something we don't know about the best of the Italian ships. I mean, presumably, 120 mil mount, it wouldn't take that long to traverse. But this is one of those soft balancing things where mm. they might decide they have a long turret traverse just because balancing. Well, I suppose we've got we've got the Leone in the game. Have- that would give us some clue. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we can up. see the turret traverse, right, in the stats? Uh, can we? It have, I don't know if it has turret traverse. It's got, like, shell damage, HE penetration. Yeah, it uh, loaded, like, oh, no, reloads yeah, time, and then... About 15 seconds is kind of on the long side, but there are worse. Yeah, it goes down to 13 at the Tier 5. Yeah. It's cool, but it's quite high. It's 18 at... Yeah, four. a lot of them are quite stiff turrets. Okay, so you've got slow turrets for tiers 1 to 4, then it goes down to 13 at tier 5, 13 at tier 6, 13 at tier 7, 13 at tier 8, back up to 18 at tier 9 and tier 10. Anyway, so the, the FR-25 is kind of the outlier there. Yeah. 
so they're better. They're, they're more, they'll be more responsive than most of the equivalent tier Japanese destroyers, to give people some kind of idea. But they're still going to feel a bit on the stiff side. Uh, I mean, considering that they are all meant for extremely short range, that's, I guess, slightly yeah. concerning because at extremely short range, like, your traverse is more important. I wonder if they're mm. going to have, like, 360-degree turrets, maybe? Probably. I mean, let's have a quick look at some... Hmm. We're looking at, at Guepard itself. It's uh, 22.5. So, I mean, most of the French... Mm. 139 mils also have a fairly stiff turret traverse, which is, you know, they're, they're a large caliber, so it makes sense. I don't think you're going to get 360 at the higher tiers. You might get it at the lower tiers. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, as you go, because if you're expecting to run a high-speed, close-range action, you don't really want to be in a destroyer. <laughs> um who knows? Maybe, maybe they'll maybe they'll be quite agile. So that might make up for it. Yeah, that would be. We don't have many, but I mean, we've got plenty of fast destroyers, but they don't mm -hmm. tend to have good turning circles for the most part. So that that would certainly be. Uh, in fact, most of them, I think, it does have the turning radius. Yeah, the tier ten has seven hundred and seventy meters turning oh, circle. That's that doesn't sound so agile. No, no. So they don't. They don't. Won't necessarily have that characteristic. But some of the lower, the tier, lower ones tier ones, four seventy, five hundred, five ten, five ninety, five seventy, six ten, six fifty, and then seven fifty, and then seven seventy. So they go. They're getting less and less agile yeah. as they go up. They're not. They're not terrible though. Rodder shift times going up as well. Starts at two point three. Yeah. Finishes up at five point seven. Again, not terrible, but you know, rudder responsiveness again an important consideration if you are going to be getting in close and uh, trying to do any kind of close in fighting with other destroyers or other ships. So, and they do have the emergency engine. Funny enough, so they get they get the emergency engine power uh, boost from starting from tier eight when they hit thirty nine knots. Yes. So they're going to be they are going to be fast. But sprinters, rather than um, any of the other longer duration yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it almost—if it wasn't for the fact that it almost—it almost almost feels to me, looking at the detectability ranges and as well, it's almost as if they're you're, they're expecting you to kind of try and stay stealth and then run in at extremely high speed, drop torps, and then try and get out using your guns as covering fire. I did wonder about that, because that's essentially the Paolo Emilio. Mm. But at that point, the the long-range, slow, and not particularly high-damage torpedoes don't make that much sense. I mean, at Tier mm. 10, the, torps, the max torp damage is less than 14,000, which is quite anemic. You don't have that many torpedoes. Yeah, and it's not it's not uh, Swedish destroyer levels of, of of reloads or anything like that either. So, and, and they I go mean, fifty six knots, so your torpedoes yeah. are not that much faster than you are. So, I mean, you're doing better than the Swedish torpedoes in terms of damage, but they're they're still quite anemic for 
for their respective tiers in terms mm. of torque damage. So yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're kind of a bit of a weird concept. We were talking about this last week that they'll almost certainly have some changes. I mean, these are the preliminary stats that have been announced, but in terms of what wargaming has as an idea for this concept overall, it's a slight mystery at the moment how they envisage these being used. Yeah, I suspect there'll probably be, a, as you said, a lot of balance changes. So we shall see. <laughs> yeah. I think that's largely it. But there is one mm. bit of news since the last time we had you on where we were talking about Pan-Asian light cruisers. And, of course, there's essentially a Dido class in that line. Well, there's now yes. going to be, uh, which I don't know if you've seen this or not, but it was announced, I think, in November? Yeah, there's going to be a Dido. An actual HMS Dido at Tier 6. So Yes, I got. I actually got it as the as a test ship. I don't know, are we allowed to talk about that? I mean, I think basically you can talk about, you know, the stats, but so, not yeah. your experience actually playing it. Playing that was more it yeah. Well, I, I've had it, I've, I've used it in one battle so far as a test ship. Um, I, I, will, I will be filing my feedback, but... Okay. <laughs> yeah so just so suffice to say i think i think they may have a few bits wrong compared, <laughs> if i'm going paris pan asian bridging one um but no, i mean I'm, I'm glad it's in the game mm-hmm. um and it, i mean it didn't, it's nice it, to have these historically you know yeah significant or even you know just existing ships in the game like, yeah. at the very least you can say that about the <laughs> It existed. Yeah, yeah, it existed. I mean, I'm, I'm holding out. I'm holding out hope. British battle cruiser line, and we've got. I mean, we've got incomparable and repulsed in the game. So clearly, they yeah. do have access to the plans for them. Repulsed being, uh, if anyone unaware, one of the current dockyard mission rewards. Yeah, and Marlborough, the yes. uh, vanguard with the KGV guns. <laughs> You know, a couple of people who've wailed their way and just bought it already. Mm. To be fair, it's not actually a, it's not it's not an awful ship to play, um, but at the same time, I can see why a lot of people might resent it, considering it's a it is a bit of a flamethrower ship. Mm. Fourteen inch guns not really that competitive at tier nine, unless you're firing a lot of HE. They did at least tone the HE down a bit compared to. Like if you if you were pumping out KGV's shells, yeah, I think there would have been a re- minor revolution on that. Yeah. So, uh, user just asked on topic of the Dido, can you add anything on the camo scheme? So, does does she have like any historical camo also planned for it? Or do you know um, anything? Uh, the well, the current camo scheme, if I remember correctly, is a kind of dark blue hull with a grey upper works. That's almost American looking. Yeah, um, I mean, that's off the top of my head. It could be a very, it could be a weird kind of blue gray as well. Um, I wonder if this will work because I can probably, I can see if I can actually load into the game and and have a look and see what the alternate version is as well. Um, Because there, there, there was a period, just off the top of my head, there was a period in the latter part of the war where. British camo was kind of dark hull light upper works. Um and 
also during that period, you had a slightly weird period where you had a dark central hull with light upper works. Um, you see some pictures of things like Duke of York, which show that we're kind of almost the Citadel area is nicely highlighted in a darker gray than the bow and stern. And the, the superstructure is in a lighter gray as well. But quite whether they've, yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head whether they went with that. Um, all right, let's have a look at it. Um, British cruisers. Why are you looking that up? I can say yeah. I've actually spotted it in comparable in game. Oh yeah. So I think they, they I think it was someone oh, yeah. quite competent at the wheel because they ended up quite. Wasn't uh, me there. <laughs> they ended up quite high up the team list, and uh, yeah, it was. I was sad I didn't get to get an actual closer look at it. I was okay, so way across the map. Dido's current camo. Um, you've got one version. They almost color inversions. So the the default version has a kind of a dark blue, dark blue gray hull and a dark, well, I guess, a medium gray upper works. Yeah, I've linked the there's a picture on on that Daily yeah. Bounce article in the uh, the stream chat. Yeah, and then the and then the alternate is yeah, it's basically inverted. You kind of got a medium gray on the. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't. I couldn't swear to it. But at least one of these looks vaguely familiar as or camo scheme. Um, which is slightly bizarre to me, but it's it's definitely a possibility. Um so yeah, but jury jury jury's out on the on the accuracy of the camo, but I'll be interested to see how it's performing in game when I get a chance to have a second second playthrough on it. Definitely, I mean, just looking at the, the stats as known, it's definitely not got a lot of health even for a, a tier 6. Nope, nope, and it has, uh, yeah, we're currently obviously no heal or anything like that, so it's, I mean, to be fair, it's a small cruiser. Hmm. It's, it's kind of the British equivalent of an Atlanta, if not entirely, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it develops. Anyway, I thought I thought I had to bring that up just as a sort of yeah. continuation from last time. Kind of yeah. I, I quite like the incomparable, to be honest. I'll be, I'll be. Uh... I mean, if nothing else, just for the the the, the fact that I mean, <laughs> we were talking about how unmad the Atlantico is, that the fact mm. that the incomparable, you know, was was championed as hard as it was by. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I also love the fact that Incomparable is the only ship in the game that currently breaks the camera set. Because <laughs> um, if you if you if you're just looking at it in normal normal battle mode view, and you you zoom out to maximum distance and look at it, if you look at any other ship in the game completely broadside on, it fits on the screen. Incomparable is so long; it actually the bounce turns <laughs> it slightly outside. <laughs> you have to look at it at an angle. See the whole thing in game. Oh, dude, it's 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 a weird one in comparable. It it does nice steady amounts of damage, but despite the fact it's got twenty inch guns, I very rarely see any kind of spectacular levels of damage coming out of that thing, unless you're engaging cruisers, at which point you either miss completely because you only have six shots, or something dies 
in a horrible, horrible blazing fire. Um, I so it's, I, it's, it's going to be a while before anything can really match Yamato for that feeling of, you know, the shells are just a big enough, but you've also got nine barrels to work with. Yeah. Potentially a pretty yeah. decent rate of fire. I, I apologise to the Kronstadt I ran into a few days ago in my English. <laughs> he was quite quite happy bow tanking in on full health, and then by the magic of, of RNG, I managed to land three citadels with 20-inch guns <laughs> from a single incomparable salvo. <laughs> Which I think was only about four minutes into the game, so that must have been very frustrating. Oh. Yeah. I'll, I oh. mean, it'll be interesting if you'll get the N3s in-game. Because yeah. that'll give you a... That should, in theory, give you a Yamato-style firepower, except you actually have even better forward arc. I think we, we will almost certainly... Like, we can't not see those in at some point. I mean, now that no, they have opened up hanging super ships. Yeah. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, to be honest, the thing that's opened the gateway for the N3 more than anything else is the second American battleship line. Because the, the big thing with the N3 is looking at it was like, the reason you never have the N3 tier 10 is not the... The armor is good as well. It was always the fact that it's a 23 knot ship and everything else at tier 10, even the battleships are 28 knot plus. And then they brought in the second American battleship line, which is big, slow, tanky things. So that's basically an N3. Mm. Yeah, well, we shall see. We shall, we see. shall see. Right. Well, I think that. That is about us overall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think we covered everything that's recently happening. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure most people know, but where can we find you, Mr. Drack? Uh, YouTube.com forward slash Drakinifel. Um, that's where you'll find pretty much all of my presence online. I do have a website as well, which cunningly enough is drakinifel.co.uk, <laughs> where I host a couple of articles and the beginnings of scanned digital photo library, which is free for everybody to use. Um, and I do have the, an occasional presence on Twitter, although, to be fair, that mostly consists of me being somewhat snarkier than usual. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's Twitter. That's what it's yes. Uh, yeah, so that that's me. Um, and, uh, yeah, obviously you will see me poking around in game at times as well. So then, uh, thanks for joining us, and I'm sure yeah. we'll have you back in the future when we have new exciting ship lines that might be real to talk about. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm always always happy to talk about new ship lines and where they might sit on the on the spectrum of fiction to reality. So uh, yeah, I'm glad glad to be back. <laughs> yeah, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Definitely. All right. And so, thanks everyone for watching, and have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.